Hello and welcome to the Rob Burgess Show. I am, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 125th episode, our returning guest is Bradley W. Hart. Bradley W. Hart is assistant professor at California State University, Fresno, and a former bi fellow of Churchill College, Cambridge, UK. His previous works include a co-edited volume entitled The Foundations of the British Conservative Party, Essays on Conservatism from Lord Salisbury to David Cameron, 2013, and George Pitt Rivers and the Nazis, 2015. His new book, Hitler's American Friends, The Third Reich's Supporters in the United States, was published this month. And now on to the show. Hello, this is Bradley. Hey, this is Rob. Hey, Rob, how are you? Great, how are you? Doing very well. Excellent. Well, hey, thanks so much for taking the time out of your uh, Saturday there in California to talk to me. That's awesome. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show. Oh, no problem. Um, well, just go ahead and introduce yourself for people who don't know who you are. Well, I'm uh, I'm Bradley Hart. I am a assistant professor at California State University, Fresno, and the author of Hitler's American Friends. Yes, and uh, I'm reading your book now. Um, I have to say, it took a lot to get me excited about reading this book, only because, I, okay, I love history. It was always my favorite subject in school. Um, any other time in my life, I would have seen this book, and I would have devoured it in a week, and it would have been no problem. Uh, I put this off, honestly, and only because, um, you know, when I first started studying history, it always seemed very far away, like not related to my life, so I could think about it more in an abstract way. Um, this is very real to me um, in Trump's America. Uh, so, I mean, you talk about this in the, you know, in the book, but go ahead and talk about the correlations you found between then and now. Well, I think what's very interesting about writing this book is that I started on this project in 2014. So, um, mm. in some senses, um, sort of the real world caught up to the research in that sense. Um, and I think what, what's really disturbing about this book is that it shows, and I sort of wrote it to in this direction, um, that we are very susceptible to this kind of extremism, that we are very susceptible to hatred in this country, that there are deep-seated um, aspects of hatred in the United States. That, that foreign powers, uh, hostile foreign powers, can take advantage of. And so it was a really interesting process to to research this because, as you say, this became more and more relevant as sort of the, the research and the writing process went on. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think there, there are some disturbing undertones there. But I think also this is actually a hopeful story. I think that if, when you get to the end of the book, um, the United States gets through this troubling period and it gets through it and, of course, wins the Second World War and leads to the greatest prosperity in, in American history and also, of course, then the Nazis are, are defeated. Um, and, and so I think there, there's something that we can take heart in in that. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And, you know, I think there is a certain strain. There's always that 20, 30 percent of America that is susceptible to this way of thinking. Um, and I just think there's there are certain times in history where that way of thinking is given more voice than it usually is. And they get overly excited when that happens in a certain way, I think. Yeah, yeah. One thing I actually sort of toyed with in writing the book, and I, I maybe maybe will still do this, but there's some what I sort of call the rule of 30 percent, which is that 30 percent, as you say, of America 
Americans will always believe in anything. And if you look at polling, <laughs> actually, this is remarkably consistent that any sort of weird idea mm-hmm. can get roughly 30% support, right? <laughs> uh, if you look at people that did believe we didn't land on the moon uh-huh. and things like that, you know, that, that's where those polling numbers usually land. So, so yeah, there, there is this sort of weird third of the country, I guess, and then we shouldn't suggest that there's necessarily the same third of the country that believes in all this stuff. But, yeah, there, there is about a third of people that will believe almost anything. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Definitely, definitely. Um, well, I mean, <laughs> the word friends, you know, uh, implies uh, a little bit more than I think some of these people uh, were given from the der, der fatherland. Uh, you know, uh, we're talking about the Bund, for example. I felt like it was, you know, I, I like your description of uh, their meeting during the Olympic Games. It's like, you said, yeah, keep up, keep up the good work. Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> Right, it's right. so it's well, so it's so pathetic to me. It's like they're like worshiping this guy, and he's like, mm-hmm, yeah, okay, have a good day. <laughs> well, well, pretty much. I mean, and that's what's so interesting is that Hitler sort of gives these groups very little attention, right? right? Because he sees them. He doesn't really believe in the. It doesn't really think the U.S. is very important to begin with beyond mm-hmm. the military power, right? right. Does not want the U.S. in the war, but he really doesn't care about any of these organizations. Yeah. And as you say, there's this awkward meeting where they take a very sort of grainy photo <laughs> with Fritz Kuhn sort of shaking hands with Hitler. And this is during the 1936 Olympics. So mm-hmm. it's obviously a, a sort of big moment for the Nazis. And they just really don't care about any of these organizations. But they do care about keeping the U.S. out of the war. And that's what makes these groups so dangerous is that, as I point out in the book, um, when you get to 1939, 1940, these groups begin amalgamating. And mm. that's when you get people like Charles Lindbergh mm. and become extremely dangerous figures on the national stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let us not forget America First started with Charles Lindbergh and his whole thing, right? Well, it, it doesn't start with Charles Lindbergh. It starts with um, some students at Yale Law School, actually. Mm. If you want to look at the, the elite American uh, corporate interests, that's, that's really where it starts. And, of course, it's actually headquartered in the... Uh, National headquarters of Quaker Oats. Oh wow! So it, it, there's a deep connection there between corporate America and America First. But Lindbergh does become the most prominent and famous proponent mm-hmm. of this. And and one thing that maybe doesn't even come across in the book necessarily, but something I'm sort of looking into at the moment is that America First is not just foreign policy, right? This is a, this is a movement that really has an entirely different vision of America and America's role in the world that extends beyond involvement in the war or lack thereof. But America First is, is about Americans asserting that they do not want to be involved, really, in any way. And that involves things like trade. It involves things like um, foreign aid. Uh, it, it's an inward sort of looking or inward sort of seeking vision of America. And I think that's something that we, we forget today, is that this was not just a movement involving opposing the war in Europe, but it's a movement that opposes the New Deal, opposes Franklin Roosevelt, and opposes really America taking any expansive role in the world. And so that, I think, is, is something that's really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've heard that described as America first as basically America alone. Uh, you know, and that's, you know, that leads to your beefing with Canada now, I guess, for some reason, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, I think, yeah, I mean, Max Boot, the conservative commentators, uh-huh. or no, sorry, it wasn't Max Boot, it was um, Bill Crystal the other day, mm. said that America first has always been dictators first. And I think that's mm-hmm. actually an apropos description, right, that when, when America sort of abrogates its responsibilities in the world, you, you get a world that becomes dominated by undemocratic powers, because mm-hmm. like it or not, America is the last democratic superpower mm-hmm. in the world. The British Empire is no longer an empire. The French are no longer an empire, right? And so if America gives up that role in the world, then then there's nobody left. Mm-hmm. Right, right. 
But, I mean, uh, skipping ahead, though, I mean, when we get to World War II, these people kind of have to sit down for a minute, right? I mean, they, they can't make a lot of noise after that happens, right? This is a really interesting part of the book, I think. Um, they do, because they sort of have to. Because mm-hmm. once Pearl Harbor happens, there's no way that you can be out there saying that we shouldn't be involved in the war. I mean, that mm-hmm. would have been political suicide. Some people do it, do, do it actually, mm-hmm. and, and they actually get indicted for sedition, mm-hmm. um, because you're, you're undermining the morale of the armed forces it's actually against the law in that period. Mm-hmm. Um, but these people don't go away, and this is one interesting part of, of the, sort of the, the last part of the book, is that for much of the 20th century, Americans were next-door neighbors with these people, right, who were America Firsters, or maybe even Boond members. Um, you know, I talked about a group called the Silver Legion, which is really radical. I mean, these people are arming for racial warfare. Mm-hmm. Um, and and this, those folks do not go away. I mean, it's not like they suddenly all disappear in 1941. They are around for ages. They could still be around, right? It's very possible there are still German-American Boond members alive today. I know. That's they what I was... I was thinking about that when I was reading it. I was like, you know, there's very likely people that attended these things that I'm reading about. This is not ancient history. Um, it's, it's not. I would, I would actually, I mean, if, if any of your listeners out there know anyone who was part of America First who wants to talk about it, I'd love to talk to them because this, this is a fascinating part of history, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, the, one of the more dangerous things about the German-American boon was that it involved children. Mm-hmm. And there were kids who were sent to these sort of Nazi-themed summer camps. And mm-hmm. those people could well still be alive. Maybe yes. Again, old, but they would have been like seven, eight years old at the time and may well remember this kind of stuff. So, sure. so yeah, I, I, you know, I, I did, did a lot of research into oral histories and trying to identify any individuals or sort of accounts uh, of this stuff. And I, I could find very little. Mm-hmm. So very clearly after the war, there is this effort to sort of erase the past. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this is the, the reality is there could still be people around that were involved in this stuff. Mm-hmm. And one interesting question, and one thing I'm thinking about a lot at the moment, sort of eyeing the next project, is how much of a continuity is there between the events in Charlottesville in 2017 and what happens in America in 1940, 1941? You know, that's only maybe one or two generations disconnected, but mm. did this stuff sort of percolate within families? Mm. Was it, was there an undercurrent of it? You know, there, there has to be a continuity there somehow. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. Well, I mean, I was just thinking about this the other day, though, but it's really like the people that remember... Uh, it's like the people that remember atomic weapons and fascism and internment camps and uh, you know people don't have vaccines for things and you know what I mean like all these things that like people knew and all those people are kind of dying off and we forget how terrible it was and so we kind of let you know maybe fascism I don't know and then like it creeps in and then you know everything else you know it's like people who were first hand for this stuff are kind of dying out and we don't remember how terrible it was before abortion was illegal to, to, you know, bring it to another thing. But you know what I mean? Like, the, people don't remember. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. This is something I try to point out to my students all the time, is that we are now losing virtually everyone who does have living memory of certainly the Second World War, but even the stuff that you're talking about. Um, you know, being out in California, um, I'm, I'm in Fresno, which was a very heavily Japanese area prior to World War II, and a huge number of people were interned here. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, we are only now now in the past, I would say, decade or so, coming to terms with the legacy of that internment because people lost their farms. They lost their livelihood, right? Um, and, and that was a huge event. But it's very important to preserve those sort of memories, I think. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but I think this, this also plays into what we're seeing in Europe, where we're seeing the rise of really dangerous groups, right? I mean, we're seeing the rise of, of the far right in Germany, which you never really want to see. Um, no. also areas like, well, well, France, I'm not a historian, doctor, but I think that's a bad thing. Well, it is a bad thing. And, that's and a horrible thing. This, well, you're seeing people actually evoking Nazi rhetoric uh, and Nazi symbolism openly so upsetting. for the first time since World War II. But you're seeing this in France as well. You're also seeing it very disturbingly in Britain. Mm-hmm. And this is something that we, we underestimate, but Britain actually had a very active fascist movement in this period, headed by a guy named Oswald Mosley. Mm. Um, and that's sort of how I got into this initially. I was working on the British fascist stuff and realized that there was an American story here as well. But hmm. yeah, this, this stuff is on the rise. And I think a, a large part of that is because we've lost, we're losing that generation of people, and younger people are looking at this and saying, well, maybe, you know, immigration is an issue. Maybe these guys aren't entirely wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's sort of like a gateway drug, right? Once you start listening to this type of rhetoric and thinking, well, maybe these guys aren't entirely wrong, then you're more willing to listen to the rest of it. Mm -hmm. And that's what's dangerous. Right. And I think that's one of the dangerous things about American exceptionalism is that we don't think this kind of thing can happen here, and it totally can. It can happen anywhere, and we should be very cognizant of that because it has happened in other democratic societies we've seen. Well, exactly. And one thing to remember is that every fascist government actually comes out of a democratic society, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, nobody, no, no fascist actually takes power purely by force. For sure. Right? I mean, the, the, the only sort of exception would be Francisco Franco in Spain, who overthrows the state. But, you know, the Weimar Republic is a democracy. It's a weak one, but it collapses. Um, Italy is nominally a democracy. It also collapses. And so fascism, is it's not like communism. It's not like you're overthrowing the state by force, necessarily. It's you're taking the worst instincts in the state mm-hmm. and propelling that into power. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes it so dangerous, as really an ideology. And, you know, I, I've been talking about this a lot lately with, with my students and also with um, sort of groups and things. And I, I keep telling people, you know, we have to be on guard against this because we think, as you say, that it, it can't happen here, to sort of quote the title of a Sinclair Lewis novel, which is actually fantastic if you haven't read it. But, um, you know, we, we think it can't happen here, but in fact it can. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm not saying that it is necessarily happening now or will ever happen. I hope it doesn't. But right. we have to be on guard against these sort of anti-democratic instincts mm. um, that, that I think are in some ways implicit in, in democratic society. This right. idea that we have to protect ourselves, that we have to take you know, highly aggressive stances against various internal threats, whatever whatever those are defined as at the mm. time. Um, but, but that's a very dangerous road to go down, and I think it's really important that people realize that. For sure. Well, I mean, okay, so you're a guy that, you're somebody that works on campus, so I, I ask this of people who are professors and, and, and people like that. Uh, we talk about free speech on campus. Uh, what has your experience been with that issue? Because uh, this well, is the, you know, you talk about free speech in this book, and I won't jump ahead of, of ourselves, but you do bring that up as it relates to your book as well. But Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think that free speech on campus is, is a really critical issue, and I do talk about it in the book, because in this period, there was really no sense of that. Um, and I have an entire chapter on students and universities, and one thing I talk about in that is that in this period, administrators actually took a fairly, I would say, Nazi agnostic line. They were sort of not really clear on what they, they, they were not clearly opposed to Nazism, let's put it that way. And some of them were actually kind of pro-Nazi because it was the opposite of communism, right? And so you sort of have this weird dynamic playing out. But I, I think right now, on you know, we're at an interesting point in this country. There's obviously people who have 
sort of targeted universities in some ways as places to sow dissension, which is somewhat analogous to the 1930s. I mean, mm-hmm. people did that in, in this period as well. Um, and, and I think, you know, it's really important for faculty and administrators on, on any campus to um, sort of closely evaluate, let's say, um, the messages that are being put out there. But I think at the same time, we have to respect, obviously, the First Amendment, and that's a, a critical part as well. So, you know, one thing I actually struggled with in writing this book was where does where is that line to be drawn right where is the line between hate speech which only sort of exists constitutionally right I mean there's no constitutional definition of hate speech um, and courts routinely have struck down anti hate speech ordinances um, and and so you know when you put that back in the context of the 1930s should these sort of Nazi agents have been allowed to speak you know I, I actually don't know the answer to that in some mm-hmm. senses I, I think they should have been but I think at the same time it was inappropriate to you know, give the faculty positions or send students off to Nazi Germany as happened mm-hmm. in this period. So, you know, I, I think right now we're in a very interesting time. Um, and obviously tensions are, are ratcheted up on a lot of campuses across the country. Um, but I think we, we have to keep in mind that we've been here before. Um, and certainly we, we survived the 1930s, we survived the 1940s, uh, we won World War II, and I think we're going to make it through this just fine. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, uh, to the point about free speech and that, I wanted to read a quote you had in, uh, from Vice President Henry A. Wallace. And I actually went and looked this uh, op-ed he wrote in 1944 up from the New York Times. After really I saw it here. Piece, it? Yeah. yeah, it's something. Uh, so I'm going to read it real quick because I really... It was striking. The American fascists are most easily recognized by their deliberate perversion of truth and fact. Their newspapers and propaganda carefully cultivate every fissure of disunity, every crack in the common front against fascism. They will use every opportunity to impugn democracy. Their final objective toward which all their deceit is directed is to capture political power so that using the power of the state and the power of the market simultaneously, they may keep the common man in eternal subjection. And that's always been it to me, is that, like, it's the one viewpoint, and here's, you know, I'm a journalist, obviously, so I have strong feelings about free speech. I feel like, you know, that's an intrinsic part of who I am, but, like, at the same time, this is the one viewpoint that if they get what they want, that no one else gets free speech. It's like everything else is gone. You know, so it's like the one viewpoint you can't abide, uh, to me. Uh, what do you think of that? Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I, I'm a professor of journalism, sure. actually, so... I, oh, okay. I <laughs> Good. Well, well, you know uh, what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, there's actually a very interesting quote that I, unfortunately, I found it after the book had gone to press, but... Oh, um, shoot. There's, Sorry. There's, there's, yeah, yeah. No, there's, there's an interesting um, quote from Stephen Early, who's actually FDR's press secretary. Okay. Okay. which is a fairly new position, actually. That position was only created by um, uh, by Warren G. Harding. So this was sort of the first 20 years of being press secretary, and he was there for ages. But Stephen Early at one point is giving a talk, I think it's about 1940, to some group of newspaper editors, in which he says roughly the same thing, in that you know, dictators will always target the press first, because this is the, this is the thing they want to shut down the most. Mm-hmm. right? And then once the free press disappears, then there's no limit on what these types of types of individuals can do. Um, and so this is very interesting because one 
of the accusations that's being leveled at FDR in this period is that he is a nascent dictator. That he's the, he's the American version of a, of a Hitler or Mussolini, which is of course absurd. Mm-hmm. But this is what people are saying about him, and so it's very telling that Stephen Early uh, is pushing back really hard in this period and saying, you know, you know what, you know what, you need to investigate us as much as you can. You need to come after us as much as you can because that's the role of the free press, and that's what makes us different than these European dictatorships. Mm-hmm. And so I think I think that's really important. But yeah, I mean Henry Wallace, you know, he's he's a very aggressive anti-Nazi in this period. Um, some of your listeners may know he actually is considered to be so left-wing in 1940 and 44 that he, or 1944 specifically, that he um, is denied the vice presidency again. Wow. Because people are afraid that FDR will die, which he does. Um, <laughs> that Wallace is possibly even a Soviet spy. Oh my. The allegations being bandied about. And so wow. Wallace basically is deprived of this given to Harry Truman, hmm. who was president, of course, a year later. Uh, but he's this fascinating guy. He's from Iowa. Um, he is this sort of very sort of socialist leaning, um, you know, ag- pro agriculture guy. Um, but it's seen as so sort of left wing that even the Democratic Party runs away from him. Hmm. Interesting. Um, but anyway, getting back to some of these other groups, we talked a little bit about uh, the Bund. Was there anything else you wanted to say about the Bund? I mean, people really have to probably read this about this one guy, Kuhn. It was that his name, Kuhn. Yeah, pretty yeah. Kuhn. Yeah. <laughs> that guy um so yeah you should read about that guy and that whole ridiculous organization uh but this other silver legion uh can you talk a little bit more about that because there's some mystical stuff going on there right the silver legion is probably the most bizarre group that right. shows up in the book so this is founded by a former hollywood screenwriter mm-hmm. named william dudley pelly and it's really kind of a central casting uh perception i think of, of a fascist organization and, and my view on pelly is that i think he's kind of just having a good time with the Legion. I don't think he seriously thinks he's going to become the American Fuhrer or anything like that, but I think he, he's sort of playing a role in that way. So, Pelly is this, this Hollywood screenwriter who in the mid-1920s, about the time the talkies come in, and I think that kind of plays a role in this too, because there's this huge disruption in Hollywood, um, claims to have been basically um, in some ways abducted by aliens, which sort of becomes this thing later on, but he claims to have been given a spiritual connection to some sort of other realm, and that he can then, following this experience, connect directly with Jesus. So he claims to be able to talk to Jesus. And he says that in 1932 or so, Jesus tells him in one of his seances um, that he needs to found a new organization to take back America for for white Christians. And so he found, when when Hitler comes to power in 1933, this supposedly triggers a series of events um, that that Jesus has told Pelley about. Of course, it's retrospective prophecy, so he sort of knows what's going to happen in advance. Um, And then he found this group called the Silver Legion. And the Silver Legion is primarily middle-aged white men. Actually, a lot of medical professionals get involved with it for reasons that we can only speculate about. But it has is primarily based around the Seattle area, and it is a bunch of guys who are basically preparing for racial warfare. So they start arming themselves, stockpiling weapons, in the belief that they will have to defend themselves against sort of communist, Jewish, non-white aggression. Um, and this becomes a pretty big movement, actually. I mean, again, it's based primarily in Washington State, even though Pelley is from North Carolina. Um, uh, but it has a nationwide following, and you have tens of thousands of members who are involved with this stuff. They have very distinctive uniforms, sort of white or silver shirts with a red L on their heart, so supposedly uh, symbolizing their loyalty. Um, but but I think, again, this is sort of the central casting perception of what a fascist group should look like. So these guys go 
marching around and they carry guns in the streets and sort of loudly defy the local authorities and say like, well, come and come and take them type sort of Clint Eastwood stuff. Um, but nothing really happens from this. Um, eventually Pelly is exposed as a fraudster. <laughs> mm. So he ends up going to jail for defrauding people who've given money to one of his business ventures. But it, it's really an indication, I think, of how dangerous this period is. I mean, if, if you know, a lot of people thought that Pelly was just a madman. In fact, Fritz Kuhn, who you mentioned a moment ago, the leader in the German American Bund, says that he will not do business with Pelly because Pelly is even more nut is, is too nuts even for him. <laughs> right? And he's, he's afraid that Pelly will take over the German American Bund if he does anything. So, so Pelly is seen largely as a madman. But the fact that this guy, who's widely sort of you know mocked, I think, can attract a following of tens of thousands of people who are willing to stockpile ammunition in their in their homes and wear these silly uniforms and go beat up people on the streets of cities like Seattle is, is really scary. I think it's just really an indicator of how fraught this period was in American history. And again, that's that's part of history that we just don't, we've just totally forgotten about, number one. And, and number two, we just don't really even want to deal with. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, another thing that you're talking about having descendants to right now, uh, the religious right, uh, your chapter about that, uh, you, you talk about uh, Father Charles Coughlin. Uh, yeah. I mean, t- talk about who he was, because, I mean, he was basically the, I don't know, what he was the Billy Graham of his day, I guess you could say? That's an interesting analogy, yeah. I, uh, maybe not the Billy Graham. Mm. I, I think he's a mixture of uh, of sort of a, a Rush Limbaugh, mm. a Glenn Beck, and <laughs> I'm not sure what else. But I mean, he's the most, so, so to make a long story short, he's the most successful, well, I was, gonna, I was going for a religious angle there, but uh. I don't, don't know a lot of contemporary religious broadcasters, uh-huh. but he's the most successful radio host probably ever. Mm. Um, we don't have accurate ratings numbers for his audience in this period, but we think it's somewhere around 20 28 million people hmm. on a weekly basis, which would make him larger than, than Rush Limbaugh at the height of Rush Limbaugh's popularity in the 90s. Um, so, so this is probably the most successful radio host of all time, possibly even on a worldwide basis. So some historians think he had a larger audience even than Hitler um, in a period in which all of German radio was obviously carrying Hitler's stuff. So, so Coughlin is, is really interesting because he, he's a Catholic priest, uh, which makes him sort of an outsider in a lot of ways because this is a period in which there's a lot of anti-Catholic prejudice. And he starts out as a um, supporter of Roosevelt in 1932. He starts out as a – he keeps telling people that Hoover needs to be defeated because he's not taking the Great Depression seriously – all this sort of, um, what seemed at the time as sort of left-wing stuff. And when Roosevelt wins the election in 32, uh, Coughlin assumes that he's going to have some sort of role in the administration. He's going to be appointed as at least an informal advisor to the president. Um, and he doesn't. Basically, the Roosevelt administration stiffs him. And so he, at this point, it's sort of unclear why he makes this shift, but he turns really radically against Roosevelt and starts, in, starts claiming that Roosevelt himself is not doing enough to stop the Great Depression, to alleviate unemployment. And so he basically borrows the Nazis' economic playbook and starts advocating huge amounts of um, investment in infrastructure, huge amounts of industrial investment, even nationalization of some industries. Um, so again, this, this is not necessarily on the right. This is this is just radicalism generally. Hmm. But by the late 1930s, it's very clear that, that Coughlin is basically in sympathy with the Third Reich. And so he goes very heavily anti-Semitic and starts claiming that the only reason the Great Depression is continuing is because of Jewish bankers. And he starts naming these Jewish bankers um, and sort of, get, get, sort of goes down the anti-Semitic rabbit hole in that way. Mm-hmm. And what's very interesting is that 
uh, as I point out in the book, the Nazis are very, very aware of what Coughlin is doing, and they think that he's one of their greatest assets in the United States. And for that reason, they do not openly or even covertly back him, because they're afraid that if they funnel this guy money, that that could be exposed and potentially discredit him. But interestingly, I mean, I, there, there's one account that I quote where there's a, an American student sort of in Nazi Germany in 1938, again, bizarre to imagine this, but it's true, um, who's sort of in a beer hall, and one of this is actually right around the time the Pope, the previous Pope had died. Um, and this sort of German beer drinker says, oh, you know, I think Father Coughlin would make a great Pope because he's in line with Nazism. <laughs> so, I mean, this is a guy who not only has this huge national audience in the United States, but is very well known even in Nazi Germany. Hmm. Um, and, I, I, you know, I think it's, it's what, one of the more disturbing things is imagining someone like Father Coughlin in the era of Twitter and Facebook. Yes. I mean, just imagine how effective, if you, an audience of 28 million people in 19 Thirty-eight. Imagine what this guy would have done with Twitter. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Imagine if Twitter had existed so many times in history. <laughs> it's, it's something to think about. But yeah, for sure. Wow. Uh, um, but you know, we see echoes of that today because I mean, Franklin Graham, uh, who was very concerned about Bill Clinton's sex life, is no. You know, that's between you know Donald Trump and whoever. But you know, it's like it's right. so funny to see how things don't change that much, you know, <laughs> but, uh, anyway, uh, you talk about, uh, politicians, uh, who were, uh, friends of, of Hitler, and you said, uh, earlier that some people spoke out during the war, uh, uh, against the war, so, I mean, talk about those people in, in Congress and elsewhere. Yeah, this is a, a really interesting, and again, it's a part of history that we totally forgot, but a really interesting part of the book, and it was, it was fascinating to research this, because it really surprised me that this had not been looked at more seriously by historians, but, in the mid-1930s, there was actually a German agent who was operating on Capitol Hill. His name was uh, George Sylvester Virak. And he came up with this very ingenious plot. This was fully backed by the German foreign ministry, we should point out, um, to influence and basically use isolationist members of Congress for German ends. So he came up with this really clever plot in which he basically approached some, some congressmen who were kind of outliers. We can talk about that aspect more in a moment if we want. Um, but approached these sort of congressmen and said, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and write your speeches for you, hmm. which takes the burden off your staff, and and uh, you just don't worry about it, and I'll just make sure that, that this is in line with your goals. And so Congress can actually take him up on this offer, hmm. um, supposedly, in some cases, not knowing he's a German agent, but let's be honest, they probably did. <laughs> um, and, and he does this, and then he comes up with, so he starts writing speeches for these anti-intervention senators, these isolationist senators, and they are fully happy to deliver these speeches on the floor of Congress. And then he escalates this further, starts inserting stuff into the congressional record, it's not actually spoken on the floor of the House or the Senate, and this is still something that goes on. You can actually just insert stuff that you didn't actually say um, in sort of congressional privilege. And then he takes that, orders reprints from the, from the congressional record, and then mails them out under congressional franking privilege. Hmm. So this is still something that congressmen have today. If you write to your congressman, um, or congressperson, we should say, they will they will send you back a letter that they don't have to pay for the postage on. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was actually the case at the time. It's called franking privilege. And so Virac started acquiring huge numbers of envelopes that had been franked using this privilege and uh, mailing out this, this Nazi propaganda. And, and we believe that he mailed out about 10 million uh, things using it. So huge amounts of stuff that was all paid for by taxpayers and absolutely stuff being written from Berlin. 
So, so U.S. U.S. Congress people are very heavily involved in this. And again, the, the question remains as to how much they really knew about it. Um, but, but I kind of suspect that they they had a pretty good sense of what was going on there, mm-hmm. and just went along with it. Wow. And it's like they know it, but they don't like. It's like a wink and a nod, you know, kind of a thing. Um, well, it's a wink and a nod kind of thing. And, what, and what's interesting about these guys is that they're all kind of political outliers. Mm-hmm. So the guy I talk about a lot in the book is Senator Ernest Lundeen from Minnesota, who's a completely forgotten figure today, partially because he dies in a plane crash uh, in 1940. But um, he's, he's the only farmer labor senator in the U.S. Senate at that point, so that makes him an outlier, number one. But he's also heavily anti-war. He'd oppose World War I. Um, there's rumors that he's actually a Nazi sympathizer, which I think are kind of founded, uh, given what he does. Mm-hmm. Um, but he he sort of openly engages with Virak and is sort of the first target that Virak successfully um, goes after, partially because Lundin is personally bankrupt. Uh, and he's so bankrupt that he's actually asking his staff to kick back part of their salaries to him. So, I mean, this is a guy who is definitely not the most morally upstanding or, or ethical senator in there. Um, and so Virick is very clever. He targets these people who are either Democrats who are disaffected from Roosevelt, so that makes them outliers, or people like Lundin who really don't have a political apparatus around them anyway, and they're kind of like personally weird. Um, and, and so he, he's, he's extremely smart in what he does. And I think this actually has some, some analogs for the present day that we need to we need to really be aware of um, of certainly our elected officials and, and sort of the company they keep in that sense. Mm-hmm. And you, you talk about the uh, FARA. I mean, we should probably explain what that is, right? Yeah. I mean, so so this is actually very um, actually. If, if we looked at the news yesterday, FARA was again in the news. This is the Foreign Agents Registration Act. Um, this was passed by Congress in 1938 to address this this, this exact issue. So by the late 1930s, VRAC among other people, that actually kind of was geared to combat VRAC himself, um, are operating on Capitol Hill and in other venues putting forth foreign propaganda. It is openly operating as propagandists for foreign governments, and there was no requirement to reveal those activities. So if you were a VRAC, you could write um, articles in newspapers, write op-eds, you could even edit your own newspaper, which VRAC does, and it could be just utterly German propaganda. And there was no requirement to reveal where that money was coming from. In Virek's case, it was actually coming straight from the German embassy. Um, so, so really, there, there was no legal mechanism to shut these people down. So Congress passed this FARA in 1938 to try to combat foreign influence. And Virek himself ends up going to prison because he's violated FARA. So FARA requires you to reveal the source of your money if you're operating as an as a agent on behalf of a foreign government. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and so Virek doesn't do that. He sort of partially does it, but violates the spirit of FARA. And there's a whole legal fight that uh, I talk about in the book that I'm not going to get into here. But um, it gets overturned by the Supreme Court at one point, and all, all kinds of crazy stuff happens. But, um, yeah, so, so Virek um, is shut down by this. But FARA, interestingly, is still the law today. And this is actually what Paul Manafort was mm-hmm. indicted under. Um, General Michael Flynn, Donald Trump's national security advisor, was indicted under this. And yesterday, actually, there was the indictment of a Russian woman who allegedly was running 
one of these sort of troll farms mm-hmm. from St. Petersburg. Um, and I read through the 38-page indictment. One of the relevant statutes there is FARA. Mm-hmm. So this is very much relevant law today. And I think we're for a long time, FARA was very rarely used. Um, the government focused more on espionage, indictments, and things of that sort. But I think we're going to see more and more of this. Um, certainly in the era of social media, anyone who's spreading um, sort of you know disinformation at the behest of a foreign power is actually probably in violation of FARA, mm-hmm. or should be. Um, and I think we're going to see a big push after the upcoming election to, to reform or expand the scope of FARA, because it really is an, an incredibly powerful tool. Mm-hmm. It just hasn't been used. Well, I remember when Paul Manafort was first indicted, uh, I think one of the initial statements from his lawyers was like, well, I'd never, no one ever gets charged with this law. Why, why are you charging him with it? This is so unfair. It's so old. Who, who cares? You know, like, right. and they say the same thing about like, uh, Oh, what is, what is that like? Uh, it's the thing where the foreign governments aren't supposed to influence uh, what Congress does or something. It's like from 1802, and they're like, nobody's ever enforced this before. It's it's old, it's stale. Throw it in the trash. Uh, the Hatch Act. There we are. <laughs> I think. Yeah, actually, there's, there's never been a prosecution under the Hatch Act, yeah. uh, which is interesting. But that that's the one that um, forbids non-government officials yes. from interfering exactly. in sort of, or engaging in, in, in diplomacy for mm-hmm. a. Uh, mm-hmm on behalf of the United States. Yeah, FARA is very interesting, and I think, you know, it's a law that, again, I looked this up at one point, but there's there's something like one dozen prosecutions between, like, 1970 and 2016, Mm. Um, and suddenly we've seen, like, five of them, right? So Maria Butina is another one, right? Maria Butina is the the Russian woman who allegedly infiltrated the NRA, Mm -hmm. right? Um, She was indicted under FARA as Mm -hmm. well. So this is a really powerful tool, and I think it's very interesting to see the government using this again, but in some ways, this is exactly what FARA was designed to do. It was designed so the American people should know who is giving them information, right? And and in the era of social media, this is probably more important than ever before, and I, I, I think we're really going to see a push to, to increase FARA's scope um, and, and potentially uh, more FARA prosecutions in the near future. Well, and like you said, I mean, with technology being the way it is, there's more and more opportunities to be in violation of FARA than there ever were before, so... <laughs> well, there are, and I think there's an interesting question here for companies like Facebook and Google, right? So, so imagine if there were an increased version of FARA that actually required everyone to reveal their activities, right? So, if you're if you're operating as a foreign agent, you actually have to reveal that on things like Facebook. What would the impact of that be on their business model? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because who knows? When when you go on Facebook, where do you do you really know where the stuff is originating from? Of course not. But an expanded version of FARA, I think, would would give us that ability. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's an interesting aspect of this. Perhaps that's a direction the government should pursue, where, um, you know, if, if you click on a certain, if you click on a link on Facebook, it actually shows you where that's come from, where that information has originated from. Right, right. Well, I mean, you know, I've heard people say that World War Three is an information war, and I think that's becoming pretty evident in certain ways. Um, so I think that's something that, that wasn't really a concern uh, back then, but is becoming more of a concern now, I guess. So. Well, I, I think in some ways, World War II started out as an information war. Well, that's a good point. And one thing I talk about in the book is that you know there, there's 
this huge battle that was waged largely outside the public eye between 1939 and 1941, when Pearl Harbor happened, between the British and the Germans. Mm-hmm. And this is one aspect we haven't talked about yet, but the British were engaged in this kind of activity as well. They actually had a, a very extensive intelligence network in this country and, and very much planted stories in the press. They had mm-hmm. sympathetic columnists like Walter Winchell and Dorothy Thompson, mm-hmm. who they could feed stories to. And, and in a couple of cases, actually, the Virek case being one, they dropped that story in, in the press to tip the FBI off to it. Mm-hmm. So the FBI investigation into Virek starts because um, the British drop this onto the lap of sympathetic columnists, and they write about it, and the FBI suddenly says, oh, wait, we didn't know about this. We've got to investigate it. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of the reverse of how you expect law enforcement to work. But the, the press plays a really important role in all that. Um, and interestingly, when FARA gets passed in 1938, um, J. Edgar Hoover, director of the FBI, goes to Roosevelt and says, well, we passed this law, you signed it, and now we have to shut down all these British propagandists. Uh, and Roosevelt, who's you know fairly friendly to the British, obviously in this period, um, says like, "Well, no, I'm not. I'm not going to do that. I'm creating an exemption for them." And so the British don't get subjected to the same treatment as as the Germans or the Italian propagandists because of that exemption. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, well, one thing we haven't really talked too much about is the uh, the business uh, section. Um, you know, we're talking about the businessmen who were friends of of Hitler, and and I had heard some of this before, like I B. Um, uh, and some other places, right? I mean, they, they they kept pretty close ties all the way through with Nazi Germany, right? Not only kept close ties, but profited massively. Sure. And this is, again, a part of American history that we just don't want to talk about. But in the book, I, I talk about um, the auto industry particularly, because mm. the auto industry was a saw Germany as a huge growth market. Uh, at the end of World War One, there were very few German auto- automobiles. They were largely Mercedes, so they were very expensive. But there was no real um, average person's car in the way that the Model T had been in the United States. And so both General Motors and Ford see Germany as this huge growth market and both bid to buy Opel, which still exists, certainly, um, one of the biggest automakers in Europe. And uh, General Motors actually wins that bid. And so they begin transforming Opel into the German equivalent of General Motors in the United States. So they're building economical cars and things like that. And then Hitler himself is a big fan of the automotive industry, so he introduces the competition for what will eventually become the Volkswagen, people's mm-hmm. automobile, still very much a brand today. It's actually created by Hitler. Mm-hmm. Um, if your listeners want to see some really ironic stuff, Hitler actually at one point personally designed the prototype for the Volkswagen bug. <laughs> so, the next time you see a Volkswagen bug on the street, just imagine the Fuhrer. And there's there's a fantastic photo you can find online um, of Hitler sitting in the backseat of Volkswagen bug. Really see it. So, so really weird ironies, right? right. Um, but the automotive industry is huge. And so both Ford and General Motors are, are deeply enmeshed in the German market. And when the war starts, they begin transferring a lot of their stuff, obviously, over to, to military purposes. So they start producing trucks for the German military. Uh, eventually, they get forced into producing aircraft engines. Um, and, and this is just one of the terrible realities of the war, is that a lot of Germany's industrial capacity that, that is used to kill people was owned and operated by American businesses mm. and involved American know-how. And you know, one thing I don't talk about so much in the book is that Standard Oil, the big oil conglomerate in this period owned by the Rockefellers, is deeply involved in this as well. Um, 
um, they have a patent sharing arrangement with IG Farben to share basically enhancements to, to gasoline and things like that. And this is the only reason the Germans can get the high octane gasoline they need to power their um, their fighters Ugh. and or their, their fighter jets and so or fighter planes in this period. But um, yeah, I mean it, it, it's just unbelievable. And then I talk in the book about a, a really nefarious plot by by a guy named William Rhodes Davis who um, basically is selling oil. He's basically an oil runner. He's he's running the British blockade and sells Nazis Mexican oil, um, very much in contravention of all sorts of laws. Um, and and the Nazis actually see this guy as one of their great assets. And so they asked Davis to uh, try to overthrow Roosevelt in the 1940 election, give him a bunch of money to do so. And, and fortunately, I think for the United States, Davis fails in that effort. But it's just an indication of how much the Nazis saw American business as, as potential or, or actual allies. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it's really like fighting with one hand tied behind your back, because like you say, it's like they wouldn't have the power to fight us if for not <laughs> these people just looking to make a buck, I guess. Uh, it's so frustrating. Yeah, I, well, I, I think that's what it is. I mean, I think it's, you know, the, the businessmen who show up in the book, some of them are, I mean, William Rhodes Davis is a really questionable guy, right? Mm. But I'm not sure that many of them are, are actually, you know, Nazis to any extent. I think they're just sort of morally bankrupt. Right. I mean, I think, if, and, and one thing I put out in the book is just put yourself in these guys' position. If you are a vice president at General Motors in 1938, are you really going to advocate walking away from millions of dollars of investments? You're going to tell your shareholders, I mean, it's a publicly traded company, right? So you're going to tell your shareholders you're just going to write that off because you disagree with their political structure? Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously that would be the right thing to do, but mm-hmm. it's just too, it's too controversial. And you see this even today. I mean, certainly today there's still these discussions about are there ethics in business, really? Um, you know, if, if you're making a boatload of money doing business with really questionable people, is, is that problematic? Um, mm-hmm. In this period, clearly the answer is no. Right. Well, I'd talk about another unenforced uh, part of American law, the emoluments clause. It's sure getting to work out lately. But, uh. Well, indeed, yeah. And, and that's actually an aspect of this, too, yeah. that, um, you know, certainly, I mean, Roosevelt's not taking any money from the Germans, but, but a lot of people are. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people who are profiting very heavily off of, of sort of German uh, efforts in this period. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, we haven't really talked about Henry Ford, but, of course, one of the great anti-Semites of his day. Um, you know, uh, and again, a part of history that people have totally forgotten about. But yeah, Henry Ford is deeply anti-Semitic mm-hmm. um, and and loves Hitler. I mean, certainly we we know that Hitler loves him back too. I mean, one of the things I quote in the book is that the only American that Hitler really has any respect for is who he calls Heinrich Ford, mm. who he sees as a fellow fascist. Um, and and part of it, which is quite interesting, is that I think fascism and, and certainly Hitler himself have this sort of fascination with industrial capacity. Right, and so this idea that Henry Ford has revolutionized the auto industry, he's built all these automobiles, the Nazis love this, right? I mean, this is the Nazi vision of the future, is that everything's going to be automated, everything's going to be huge industrial outputs, you have a huge war machine, and people like Henry Ford are just absolutely part of that vision. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's more fascist than an assembly line, if you think about it? <laughs> no, very very much so, and, and they see this as, as admirable, right? I mean, right. what an assembly line is in this period, it's people who are doing a repetitive task over and over to generate huge amounts of stuff, and it's people who all look the same, are dressed the same, <laughs> right, have very regimented, it's, it's very fascist, absolutely. Right. For sure. 
Um, well, I mean, I that's that's most of the things I had to ask you about the book. Is there anything I didn't ask you about that you want to make sure people know? I mean, we talked about a lot. Well, we have, and I think one interesting aspect of this is the role of political parties. Um, and I think it's, it's very important. Um, one of the things I talk about in the religious right chapter is a guy named Gerald B. Winrod, who's mm-hmm. this very radical... Um, you know, when talk about a sort of Billy Graham figure, he's actually more of a Billy Graham in some ways than um, than Coughlin is, but certainly much more anti. I mean, massively anti-Semitic. We should we should draw the distinction there, which Billy Graham really never was. But um, you know, Winrod is this radical Protestant preacher. He's based out of Kansas, and he gets a, a pretty sizable nationwide following. He's sort of an imitator of Coughlin. In 1938, he runs for the U.S. Senate in Kansas, um, and this is a, a, a election in which everyone sort of knows Republicans are going to win this seat. Um, and one interesting bit of trivia is that the person that Winrod, or the person that loses the election, the Democrat incumbent, is actually the last Democrat to ever represent Kansas in the U.S. Senate to the present day. Mm. So 1938 is the transition period. Wow. Um, yeah, incredible to think about. But mm-hmm. So Winrod is running for this nomination. Everyone knows the Republican is going to win this seat, and he's the front runner. Um, and this goes on until like a month or two before the election when the National Republican Party steps in and convinces he's a former governor to actually run and defeat Winrod. But if that had not happened, you would have had a guy who, who had taken money from Nazi Germany, had traveled to Nazi Germany, openly praised Hitler in the press. He would have been the U.S. Senate in 1939. Um, and so I think that that's a really important lesson, is that the, the role of political parties in policing themselves is essential to democracy. Um, and that, that Winrod instance has really you know, stuck in my mind since I sort of started researching it, because I think this is a really important lesson for today. The political parties, and especially in the era of primaries and, and primary elections, which didn't really exist back then, um, this, is, it, it, this is essential for voters to keep in mind. Is, you know, is the person I'm voting for actually good for this country? Not just somebody I agree with, not just somebody who you know shares my values or whatever, but is this actually a person I want in the U.S. Senate mm-hmm. or in the United States Congress, right? And I think at, the, at our current moment in history, this is more essential now than it's probably ever been since the 1930s. Right, right. Well, I mean, you're going to look at who's going to run for president going forward, and it's going to be like no people we've ever seen before being taken seriously. <laughs> well, you know, Kanye 2020, right? Uh, <laughs> don't make me cry. Uh, <laughs> wow. Uh, well, uh, one question I always ask people before we go is, what music have you been listening to lately? <laughs> you know, I am, and anyone who knows me will, will tell you that I am a huge old school music fan. So I've listened to a lot of Billie Holiday lately. Wow. That is um, awesome. I, I, I love Lady Billie. Um, but uh, I understand Eminem's new album is pretty good. I haven't listened to it yet. Mm, yeah, yeah. I've heard the same thing. Yeah. I, I've, I've, of course, you know, I'm 35 and that, you know, hits right in my sweet spot chronologically. So I definitely was a white kid in the Midwest, like listening to Eminem. I'm not going to say I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I have lost track with Eminem a bit over the years. But I did appreciate the, st- uh, the you know, his freestyle about Trump and his later, you know. I think that, you know, knowing the people that I grew up with, that was a very strong statement for him. Because I think a lot of Trump fans are probably in his audience. Because a lot of, like, you know, people from where I grew up who don't exactly think like I do, you know, definitely, prob- that probably <laughs> hit them pretty hard, uh, I would say. so. Yeah, I, well, I, I did probably a different discussion. But I think Eminem is one of the most interesting cultural figures at the moment for exactly the reasons you're putting out there. Mm-hmm. But I think if the Democrats have any hope of retaking you know, the White House or other forms of national government, they've got to win back that Eminem demographic. I mean, th- these are literally the people that elected Donald Trump. 
right? Yeah. This is why he won Michigan. This is why he won the sort of upper Midwestern states. But I mm-hmm. think Eminem is, is maybe our most important cultural figure right now. Absolutely. That, that's a great point. Yeah, well, that sounds like another hour of, of discussion. But um, I'd, uh, I'd love to do it. <laughs> <laughs> great. Well, 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 we'll do it for next time. But uh, in the meantime, I definitely think people should uh, read this book. I am going to finish it. It's super interesting. Um, you know, uh, thank you for coming on. Uh, you're welcome back anytime. Uh, and uh, yeah, I hope you have a good rest of your Saturday as well. Thank you. You as well. It's been a pleasure. Let's do it again soon. For sure. Talk to you later, man. All right. Have a good one. Bye-bye. If you enjoy this podcast, there are several ways to support it. Join the Rob Burgess Show mailing list. Go to tinyletter.com forward slash the Rob Burgess Show and type in your email address. Then respond to the automatic message. I have a Patreon account, which can be found at patreon.com forward slash Rob Burgess Show Patreon. I hope you'll consider supporting in any amount. 
Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review everywhere the podcast is available, including iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Facebook, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, and RSS. The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com. You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. And if you have something to say, record a voice memo on your smartphone and send it to therobburgessshow at gmail.com. Include voice memo in the subject line of the email. Until next time.